Luke chapter 21, beginning now at verse 5. We're going to go from verse 5 and take it through to the end of the chapter in our time here together on Wednesday night. And this is a very important passage of Scripture that has to do not only with what uh, happened years ago in 70 AD, but also is what yet to happen in uh, God's plan for the planet Earth. So let's take a look here, verse 5. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. When Jesus said those words to his disciples, if you could have seen a movie of their reaction, I bet their jaws would have dropped and their mouths would have been wide open in astonishment. They would be like, what? Because what they wanted Jesus to look at and what they were looking at together, Jesus and his disciples, was the temple as it stood in the days of the first century in Jerusalem. This is the famous second temple period, and the temple was known as Herod's temple. Now, it's not that Herod really built the temple. It was the same temple that was built by Ezra and the returning exiles when they came back from Babylon some 400 years before this time. Yet Herod, that great, wealthy, half-Jewish man, was such an architect of vision and skill and unbelievable wealth, and he wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jewish people, that he took the rather humble temple that Ezra and the returning exiles had built hundreds of years before, and he took that temple and made it something spectacular. The Jewish temple of this period was something amazing to look at, and it was incredibly revered among the Jewish people. It was so revered that it was customary for a Jew of this period to swear by the temple. I don't know if that concept can even attach itself into our brains. In other words, you might say today, I swear to God, which I don't advise you to do. That's kind of a way of taking the Lord's name in vain. But if somebody were to say that, you, okay, you understand. Well, they would say this, I swear to the temple. And, and they would mean it. That's how revered the temple was. And to speak against the temple could be considered blasphemy. That's how highly they regarded this temple. And it was beautiful. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus said that this temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that shined so brightly in the sun that you couldn't look at it. And where there wasn't covering gold plates over the outside of the temple, there was white marble. And the marble was so brilliant and so polished that visitors coming to Jerusalem from a distance looked at the Temple Mount and thought that it had to be snow. It was an amazing, an amazing building. But look at what Jesus said in verse 6. Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus said it very Uh, boldly. You see this great, amazing building? It's going to be leveled. 
Now, I don't mean any disrespect by this, please. I'm just trying to make an illustration. Think if somebody would have come in the year 2000 and taken a look at the World Trade Centers and say, see those amazing uh, two buildings, these temples to commerce and business in the United States. You know what? In a couple of years, those things are going to be absolutely flattened. What did you see? What are you, crazy? And yet it happened. Well, it's sort of a similar kind of thing with Jesus and the attention that he's drawing to the temple. Now, verse 7. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Notice the question they ask. First of all, in verse 7, they ask, Teacher, when will these things be? They were astounded by the prediction, and so they asked a very logical question. Jesus, you say that this magnificent and strong and opulent temple, you say that this temple is going to be absolutely leveled. When? Is it going to happen soon? Is it going to happen in the distant future? And this question that the disciples asked begins one of Jesus' most famous teachings, and it's often called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Matthew chapter 24 makes it very plain that Jesus gave this teaching when he was on the Mount of Olives. Therefore, they call it the Olivet Discourse. Now, Matthew chapter 24 seems, at least to my judgment, to have a more complete account of this teaching. And it's helpful to answer questions from the Luke account from the more complete recording in Matthew. But this is what both Matthew and Luke make very clear. That Jesus spoke in the Olivet Discourse of two things. He spoke of the nearer destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen about 40 years after Jesus spoke those words. Actually, if you were to be technical, it would be more about like uh, 37, 38 years, something about that, about that. So approximately 40 years from that time, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And Jesus' prediction has that in view, but also very clearly... He has in view not just the destruction of Jerusalem, not just the end of the temple, but also the end of the age. It's almost as if this, as if Jesus is standing from a vista point and looking off into the distance, and he sees two mountain peaks, two mountain peaks, one and then another one behind it. Now, I don't know if you know the way that the human eye and optics work and such, but sometimes you look off in the distance and you can see two mountain peaks, and from your eye's perspective, they look like they must be pretty close front to back. But if you were to go up on an airplane between them, you would say, my eye sees them being pretty close front to back, but actually there might be hundreds and hundreds of miles between the two peaks. So it's like one peak is the near destruction of Jerusalem, the more distant peak has yet to occur in our day, it is the end of the age and the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, this chapter in Luke chapter 21 that we deal with tonight deals with matters regarding the second coming of Jesus. It's the area of theology that systematic theologians call eschatology. You don't necessarily have to remember that word. I just throw it out so you can make the connection. But it's the word eschatology, and that is, biblically speaking, the study of end times or the things regarding the end of the age. 
Now, I do have to always give a little bit of a disclaimer whenever I start talking about eschatology, because when Christians get together and talk about end times things, there's a lot of different opinions. Christians see things and frame things in different ways. And it's always a bit of a challenge for a teacher to deal with that. Because part of me wants to turn Luke chapter 21 into a five-part series where I carefully explain the different perspectives and lay it all out. And then part of me says, look, I'm just going to teach it the way I believe it and give a little bit of reference to the way that other people might see it and bring it to you that way. And if you'd like to do more research, you can always ask questions of me or you can go and do the research on your own. But what I want you to know is that when you're dealing with things of prophecy and the second coming of Jesus, there is not a universal opinion among Christians except to say that Jesus is coming again and we must be ready. That's universal. However, I've got to say that when it comes to sort of these partisan understandings of the doctrine, I'll just admit this. I don't know how to teach something that I believe as if I don't really believe it. So when I teach these things as if I really believe, I understand that there's other perspectives and there's other viewpoints out there. I just don't think they're correct. And, and I, I'm bold enough to say that I believe, and I hope this doesn't sound proud or arrogant, but from the study I've done, from the research I've done, from the investigation of the other viewpoints and sources, I think I'm right. <laughs> now, it's not always easy in this. Eschatology is a difficult subject. And this is the way I sometimes explain it to people. There are problems with everyone's approach to eschatology. I don't care which approach you take. When you start talking about the end times, you will find some difficulties in somebody's approach. But to be honest, I'll take my difficulties instead of their difficulties in my own analysis. So with all those caveats, let's look now at verse 7. What sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now, Jesus' reply to these questions recorded in both Matthew 24 and here in Luke chapter 21 has in mind, as I said before, both the destruction of Jerusalem in the near term and the ultimate return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And Luke's record focuses more, at least in this first part, on the first subject. So let's take a look now at verse 8. And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. The first thing that Jesus wanted them to know about this coming to stand, as Matthew states at the end of the age, is he wanted them to know, do not be deceived. You see, Jesus warned the disciples that many people would be deceived as they anticipated his return. And there have been times in the history of the church when rash predictions have been made. When people have got out their biblical calculations and calendars and predicted years or dates or this and that. And friends, this has been a mistake. I believe that we should live in a great sense of anticipation of the soon return of Jesus Christ. I believe that that's how he wants us to live. However, we should not set dates. We should be aware of times. We should be aware of seasons. We should have an anticipation that Jesus is coming soon. And if we see evidence that would encourage us that Jesus is coming soon, we should get excited about it and take it to heart. However, date setting 
is completely unadvised. I think about American history, and I think about one notable example of the disappointment of prophetic expectation happened in the year 1846 with a man named William Miller. Because of William Miller's prophetic interpretations, his calculations, his publications, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who were convinced that Jesus would return in 1846. When he did not, there was a great disappointment with some falling away and some cultic groups being spawned from the prophetic fervor. This was the legacy of the great disappointment under William Miller. That's why Jesus says, look at it again in verse 8. Many will come in my name. They'll say, I am he. The time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. That's what Jesus says. Don't go after these false messiahs. In the years immediately after Jesus' crucifixion and on into the first and the early part of the second century, there were many false messiahs roaming around Judea. And there's been no shortage of them ever since. Don't go after them. Do not be deceived. Now verse 9. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. There will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Now, please understand what he's saying. Look carefully at verses 9, 10, and 11 and understand what he's telling us. He's telling us that those things are not the sign of his coming. The things that he mentions. Uh, You'll hear of wars and commotions. Do not be terrified. They must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. That's the whole point there in verse 9. You see, Jesus specifically said that none of those things are the specific sign of his immediate coming. I like how Jesus described them as recorded in this same discourse. Again, as I said before, Matthew treatment. In Matthew chapter 24, I believe it's in verse 8, he describes these things as the beginning of sorrows. And it's a very picturesque phrase in the ancient Greek. Because actually he uses a phrase that has the intonation of it's the beginning of labor pains. Now, I'm not a woman and having never been a woman, I don't know the experience of giving birth. But I have it on reliable observation that labor pains have a pattern of increasing intensity and frequency until the child is born. And I think we can surmise from that, from what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, that these things, wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, none of them in and of themselves are the sign. Now, hasn't been the tendency of human beings to think that way? Very naturally so. This is just how we're wired. A cataclysmic war happens and our world is shaken and we say, it must be the end. Jesus says, no, that's not it. A famine comes and people around us are dying of malnutrition. This must be the end. Jesus says, no, that's not it. None of those things individually are the sign. But since they are the beginning of sorrows in the sense of labor pains, we would expect that such things would become more frequent and more intense 
as the time of the end would approach. By the way, that gives us some reason to believe that the time of the end is on the horizon. So going on now to verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to uh, meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. I love what Jesus says. He goes, listen, in addition to all the uh, things going on in the world, all the world calamities, the wars, the famines, the pestilence, the catastrophes, the earthquakes, yes, there's going to be all sorts of war, uh, worldwide calamities before I come, but, hey, believer, you're also going to have your own personal little calamities. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to take you, and what did he say? You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. They're going to lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you. Now again, no Christian should regard any particular persecution as absolute evidence of the end. But rather, we should expect that this is just what belongs to people as being followers of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says there in verse 12. He says, they'll deliver you up both to the synagogues and the prisons. Do you know what that means? He means that this persecution that you suffer, sometimes it will come from a religious source. Sometimes it'll come from a secular source. But it'll come against you. But notice here, verse 13, there's going to be good news even in the persecution. But it will turn out for you an occasion for testimony. Yes, you're going to be persecuted, but you are going to have the opportunity as you stand before that king, as you stand before that magistrate, as you stand before that governor or official, you're going to have opportunity to give testimony, and God will use it even in those instances. And friends, has not that promise of Jesus been fulfilled over and over again throughout the history of the church? Isn't it amazing how God can use men and women even in the midst of their persecution, even in the midst of their suffering in prison. We think about brothers and sisters who are imprisoned all over the world. We think about poor Saeed in an Iranian prison, do we not? And I think we should focus on him. And it's wonderful for us to think about him and to pray for him and to pray for his release and to pray that God uses him in the prison, which I believe God is, even as we pray, to bring an amazing testimony to many, many people but we must remember, he's not the only one. It's not like there's just one Saeed. There's hundreds and hundreds of people like him all over the world in prisons being persecuted. But Jesus makes such a beautiful promise in verse 15. Did you notice it? He said, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. I kind of like how Jesus phrased that. He didn't just say in a generic way, a mouth and a testimony will be given to you. Or he didn't even say, the Spirit will give you a mouth and a testimony. Jesus made this very personal, and he said, I'm going to do it. My suffering brother or sister, Jesus says, I will be very close to you in the midst of your persecution, and I will give you a voice in the midst of your suffering. That's very powerful. That's very precious. Now look at verse 16. You will be betrayed. 
even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Those words in verse 16 hit us like a slap in the face. You will be betrayed. People in whom you've trusted, people who were your close friends and confidants, sometimes your own family, they will betray you unto persecution. I just imagine how many discouraged, persecuted believers have opened up their Bible to that after being betrayed, and at least they found comfort in this. Well, Jesus knew that it would be so. This didn't catch God by surprise. He told me that I would be betrayed. And because of this, some would even die. It says here, and will put some of you to death. And then verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Friends, I just have to say, I was meditating on that particular verse, that particular line. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And think of how crazy that is. Here is Jesus, perfect love, perfect beauty, perfect forgiveness, the most perfect man who has ever walked this earth, the man who healed the sick, the man who fed the hungry, the man who cleansed the leper, the man who died on the cross in the most self-giving, sacrificial work that this world has ever seen. And people will hate you because you're associated with him. It makes no sense, but that is the madness of a world in rebellion against God. And so he says, they'll be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost in verse 18. Look, I got to say, I had a little bit of trouble with verse 18. Because honestly, look, just between you and me. Didn't he just say a few words earlier that some of them were going to die? It's almost, yeah, and some of you are going to die. But don't worry, it's all going to be good. Um, Jesus, die? What we realize is that Jesus is speaking very powerfully and very passionately right there from an eternal perspective, is he not? From an eternal perspective, not a hair on your head shall be lost. I don't mean to sound grotesque or mocking when I say this. It's almost as if like this. They may chop off your head, but not a hair on your head will be lost. In an eternal perspective, God's got it all under control. Don't worry, you are my child. That's something that Jesus could only say with an eternal perspective in mind. Now verse 20. And we're going to read through the middle of verse 24. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Jesus warned his listeners and he warned them knowing these words would be recorded and available for a generation to come. And he warned them, he warned them 
about the attack that would come upon Jerusalem in approximately 70 A.D. This focused on the nearer aspects of this prophecy, and sadly, the Jewish people virtually ignored this warning by Jesus in A.D. 70 when the Roman armies circled Jerusalem. Jesus said, when you see that about to happen, verse 21, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of there. In AD 70, once the Roman armies had encircled Jerusalem because there had been a violent and bloody rebellion of the Jewish people against their Roman overlords in the years preceding that. And finally, the Roman legions came under the leadership of Titus, the son of the emperor, and they came and they came to put things in order again and to utterly crush that rebellion in only the way that Rome could do it. They did it slowly, they did it methodically, but they did it completely. And once Israel, once Jerusalem, excuse me, had been surrounded by an army, once the siege walls had been made, there was no getting in or going out except at the cost of your life. And they circled it and they laid siege to Jerusalem and eventually they conquered it and they laid the city level. Now, in one of the curious matters of history, As far as we know, virtually no Christians died in the occupation and the siege of Jerusalem because they listened to Jesus. The Jewish, excuse me, the Christian historian Eusebius, writing after this, explained that they listened to this word of Jesus and they fled to the city across the Jordan River, the city of Pella, mostly there. Very few, if any, Christians perished in the fall of Jerusalem. But look at that phrase in verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, 1.1 million Jews perished in the fall of Jerusalem. Let your mind think about that for a minute. 1.1 million and another 97,000 were taken captive and brought back to Rome and paraded through the streets of Rome and uh, made slaves. That's what happened in the fall of Jerusalem. Truly, Jesus meant it when he said, these are the days of vengeance. And why he had such a heart that the Jewish people would turn to him and listen to him and escape this terrible calamity that would come upon Jerusalem. So much so that this is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, because he could see the massive devastation to come upon that city that he loved, and why he warned everyone who would listen that they could flee from the coming destruction. Now, if I were making notes in my Bible, I would make a little line, not a great big one, because I don't like making great big marks in my Bible, but a little line right in the middle of verse 24. I would make a line right before the phrase, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That phrase is basically a pivot 
taking away from the greater focus upon what happened in 70 AD to now looking forward to what will happen at the end of the age. Because what followed was an occupation of Jerusalem for many, many centuries, the time of the Gentiles. You see, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jews predicted by Jesus, there would come a long period when Jerusalem was dominated by the Gentiles. But you know your history, your 20th century history. After thousands of years of exile, a Jewish state was miraculously established in the land of Israel again in 1948. It was not until 1968 that Israel controlled Jerusalem. But I would make an argument to you that it could be said that still, even today, even today, Jerusalem is trampled by the Gentiles. And this is what I mean. If God has his eye on any particular center of Jerusalem, if there is a bullseye on the target of Jerusalem, it would be the Temple Mount. That would be the center. Everything else would radiate from there. And did you know that to this day, the Israelis' authority yield the administration and the police and the governance of the Temple Mount to an Arab authority? You can make the argument that the core, the most important piece of real estate in Jerusalem is still trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You see, notice that phrase, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When these times of the Gentiles are completed... I myself believe that the remaining seven-year period appointed to the Jewish people as described in Daniel chapter 9 will begin. And the calamities described in the following verses, following on from here, will then be fulfilled. Look at it here starting at verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Jesus now is looking at the second distant peak upon the horizon. You see, the destruction of Jerusalem happened with great calamity and disaster. And the end of the age, the glorious return of Jesus, will also be preceded by a period of great calamity and disaster. Look at how he describes it in verse 25. Signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress of nation, with perplexity. History records no adequate fulfillment of these words in A.D. 70 or immediately following. Jesus now is looking to the aspects of the ultimate fulfillment of his return And the end of the age. And if you want an idea of what this is going to be like, look in your Bible in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Revelation chapters 15 through 18. All of that will culminate in the dramatic, spectacular return of Jesus coming with his church to this earth. Look how he describes it in verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Friends, can I just say, 
That did not happen in AD 70. But it has yet to happen and it will happen and people should be ready for it, especially when people perceive that they are in the midst of this great time of calamity that in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus described as the great tribulation. We should see here in verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. I believe that for those people who have to endure this period known as the Great Tribulation, one of the great comforts that they will find from looking at the Word of God is that it will not go on forever. I think for a believer trying to hang on and survive during that period, when they open up their Bible and read something like in verse 28 where Jesus said, look up because your redemption draws near, it will give them so much hope, so much strength to be able to hang on and say, as bad as this is, it is not going to last forever. Jesus is going to come maybe even sooner than I think. And that's why he says, starting at verse 29, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Notice what he says. First of all, verse 29, he gives a little parable, a mini parable. Look at the fig tree. The fig tree is just one example of a tree that buds before summer. By the way, let me give you my opinion here. I don't believe that Jesus is focusing on the fig tree as a specific representation of Israel in this context. I think that the focus is just on the fact that when the fig tree buds, there's inevitable results. Summer is near and fruit is coming. That's why Jesus says, look at it there in verse 29, look at the fig tree and all the trees. It's not the figginess of the tree that's in view. It's just this character of a tree. When it buds, summer's near. And same way Jesus is saying, when this cataclysm begins to come on the earth, you know that his return is near. It will inevitably follow. And then he says something very bold in verse 32. This generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Now this verse has been the source of a lot of confusion. There have been some people, I think erroneously, who believed that Jesus said that he would return in glory within one generation of his own departure from this earth. I don't think that's what Jesus said. Jesus was not looking at his own disciples and saying, listen, Peter, James, John, all you guys, your generation will not pass away until I return. No, that's not what Jesus said at all. I believe that what Jesus is referring to with the this generation is he's referring to the generation that sees the signs of the great cataclysm. Again, it's one of those precious promises to those believers, to those followers of Jesus Christ who would be in this time of great tribulation or great calamity. They can find hope and say, it's not going to go on forever. Jesus said, if we see it, then we're going to see the very end. He will come soon. And I imagine that passage of Jesus giving so much hope, so much inspiration to someone in such a desperate and even torturous time as the great tribulation. Now you should know, that there is also a strong case to be made that Jesus did not mean generation in the sense of a span of time, 
But the ancient Greek word that's translated there, generation, can also be very legitimately translated race, referring to an ethnic people. Jesus may have been referring not to a period of time, but to the Jewish people. And he was saying, it doesn't matter how much the Jewish people are persecuted. It doesn't matter how many genocides are perpetrated against them. They will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. I don't believe that that is the, but it's a very plausible alternative interpretation of this. That Jesus intended to speak of the existence of the Israeli people. But notice this with great strength. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Friends, who says that except God? Did Isaiah ever say such a thing? Did did King David ever say such a thing? Did Paul ever say such a thing? Who says that except God? No one, unless they're a blasphemer. And of course, Jesus was no blasphemer. Verse 34, this may be the most important part of the chapter right now. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now notice what Jesus says. Verse 34, in light of all this about my coming, you better watch out. You better take care. You better, as he says, take heed to yourselves. There are certain things that will make you unprepared for the return of Jesus. What are some of those things? I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but here are some of those things. Carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life. Each one of those can make us unprepared for the return of Jesus. They can make the heart, isn't that a heavy phrase he used? Weighed down. You don't want your heart to be weighed down. Why? Well, continue on. Verse 35. It will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. I got to say, this verse kind of blows me away. A snare, a surprise. A snare is always a surprise. I mean, nobody deliberately walks into a snare. If there's no element of surprise, it's not a snare. Now, wait a minute. How could the coming of Jesus be a surprise, a snare? Didn't he just tell us? that planets will be shaking, that the sun and the moon, that there'll be signs here, there'll be all this calamity, there'll be all this destruction before his glorious return, then how can it come as a snare? Friends, because when you go through the scriptures and understand what Jesus says about his return, frankly, he seems to talk about it in contradictory terms. Sometimes he says, I'm going to return to a world that is in the midst of great calamity. Other times he says, I'm going to return to a world that says peace and safety and business as usual. Uh, That's like a snare, a surprise. Sometimes he says, I'm going to return the earth with my church like a glorious army. Other times he says, no, I'm going to meet my church in the clouds. Which one is that? Uh, He gives different ideas, different ideas about the surprising or the predictability of it on and on. I think the answer is to say that there are 
two aspects of Jesus' return that are distinct, separated by an appreciable time. The first aspect comes suddenly, unexpectedly, as a snare in a time of peace and safety. The second aspect of Jesus' second coming comes with great anticipation to a world that's almost destroyed by the judgment of God with Jesus coming with his church in judgment from heaven. Now, Those who are ready for the first aspect of his coming, notice this phrase, would be counted worthy to escape all these things. Verse 36. What are the things that they would escape? The things of the great calamity that will come upon the earth. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? There's an aspect of my coming that will come as a snare, as a surprise. And if you are taken in that aspect of my coming, you will escape these things that will come upon the earth. By the way, he doesn't say you will be preserved in the midst of them. He says you will escape them and you will, notice at verse 36, you will stand before the Son of Man. Those who are caught up together with Jesus to meet the Lord in the air, as 1 Thessalonians 4.17 describes, They will escape the tribulation to come upon the earth. They won't escape persecution or trial or difficulty that happens before that. But the great outpouring of wrath that God has appointed in the great tribulation, they will escape that. Therefore, Jesus says, look, verse 36, watch, therefore, pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape those things. Friends, if I could sum up all the teaching of the New Testament on the return of Jesus on a practical point. There's many theological and eschatological points to bring out. On a practical point, let me boil up all the the idea of the return of Jesus in this. Watch and be ready. And I don't care how good your Bible charts are. I don't care if you've got the identity of the Antichrist and you know 666 forwards and backwards. I don't care if you know all that stuff. If you don't watch and be ready, you don't know anything about prophecy. That's where it comes down to our life on a practical level. If Jesus were to come tonight for his church, if it would come as a surprise, as a snare, are you ready? Or, as he said, is your heart weighed down. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 describes God's people being caught up in the air to meet Jesus in the clouds, which sounds crazy. Let's admit it. It sounds crazy. It, I, I just relate because that's what the Bible says. But frankly, it sounds very strange. Caught up in the air to meet Jesus. In the, how can you be caught up in the air to meet Jesus in the clouds if you are weighed down in your heart? By, what is it? By carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life. Oh, Jesus, make us ready for your return. Ready for your return. I would much rather have somebody display a life that is thoroughly ready for the return of Jesus, yet they disagree with me on how all of it will work out in detail than have somebody who agrees with me perfectly on all the details, yet their life is not ready for the return of Jesus Christ here and now. Friends, watch and be ready. Last two verses. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet 
Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This shows us, first of all, the simplicity of Jesus. He was probably, like many other pilgrims, camping out on the Mount of Olives. Pilgrim time is thousands of people are in Jerusalem, so he's kind of camping out on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Secondly, secondly, notice how brave Jesus is. The religious leaders are after him. They're aching to arrest him, to put him on trial. And what does he do? He goes out in the most public place possible and he publicly teaches. That's the courage of Jesus. And we're going to see it really develop in the following chapters as we get into it next week. Father in heaven, I pray, and Lord, I know this is a big prayer, but I pray that each and every person who's here tonight Each and every person who may see this either now or later uh, over the internet. Each and every person who may listen to this at a later time. That they would be ready for the return of Jesus. That they would have their faith in you and not in themselves. That they would have repented of their sins and put their faith in you. And that they would not be weighed down by drunkenness, by carousing, by the cares of this world, and anything else that would weigh a heart down and make it not ready to fly. Help us to watch and be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, Troy. Hey, David. Sorry I took so long. It was all good. It's a long chapter. I think you answered some of the questions, so maybe we could just skip over the question. All right, well, that's it. Okay, good. I answered them all. (laughs) And you got to leave a little more meat on the bone. Okay, so how do you know that your view is the right view? Well, um, you know, you, you study and you compare. And you try to look at the best arguments that people make from the other side. I've encountered this all over again this week as I've thought about it, as I've researched, as I've done study. I really look to try to understand the interpretive approaches of groups that believe differently than I would on these secondary matters of eschatology. And um, I weigh their arguments, and honestly, I find their arguments wanting. I I don't think they're stupid. I I don't think they're unspiritual. I just don't think they're right. And I I would hope that they would say the same of me as well. Um, but yeah, let's... Yeah, it'd be kind of sad for you to hold your view and you think you're wrong. Yeah, I, yeah. I, how great would that be? Well, I'm going to teach you guys this, but I don't really believe it, so whatever, <laughs> but I'll let, no. Yeah, I, and like you. I said, I find it impossible to teach things I believe as if I don't believe them. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. Okay, so... Here's a question. Uh, So the plans of the Jewish people that they have now to rebuild the temple, which temple plans are they using? The first, the second, or Herod's? I believe, um, well, the second temple temple actually is Herod's. It's kind of a second temple 2.0. Okay. Um, So I think they would, if if they did have the opportunity to rebuild the temple, uh, they would build it on the pattern of the second temple. Please understand... The movement to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem among the Jewish people today is a fringe movement. Um, yet, it's increasing in its 
popularity. I read an editorial from a secular Jew uh, five years ago or so, and he in the Jerusalem Post wrote an editorial saying we should rebuild the temple. Kind of shocked me, but he meant it. Um, But you, you need to understand, it's not like there's this widespread effort to rebuild the temple. The, the people want to do it. They're a fringe, but they're a very committed fringe. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so verse 6 talks about one stone shall not be left upon another. Does that mean the temple or the temple mount? Uh, most pointedly, it refers to the temple. The yeah. temple mount as a hill still existed, and most of the retaining wall remained. But the structures were so thoroughly destroyed on the temple mount that there's debate as to where they actually stood. Okay, and I was told that, you know, the prediction of not one stone upon another, you think, oh, is that just fanciful, you know, words? You know, is that, did that really happen? I was told that the soldiers were actually commanded to knock each stone off because the gold of the temple was burned and melted in between the cracks. And so they're trying to get the gold. I, I have heard this as well, that it was commanded to be dismantled to retrieve as much of it as possible. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. They, they, they also did yeah. some sophisticated explosions. You know, the Romans were great engineers and had a lot of technology. And they did like what we would call fertilizer-type bombs because some of the stones that were up on the temple used to construct aspects of it were found great distances away. And so it seems like they used some pretty gnarly explosions too. Wow, like ancient terrorists. Exactly. Well, yeah, okay. I didn't know that. Okay, is it reasonable to draw any prediction from wars, earthquakes, famines, fearful sights about Christ's return when all these things have regularly occurred throughout the centuries? Well, that's one of the reasons why Jesus says these in and of themselves are not the sign. Now, if you were to go and look at how Jesus describes it in the Matthew 24 accounting of the Olivet Discourse, he makes it very clear what is the sign. The sign is the abomination of desolation, which is an idolatrous image set up in the Holy of Holies of the temple. The sign has not occurred yet. Um, So, uh, no, I forgot what the question was. Yeah, you answered it. Okay. There'll be a lot of things that will happen. Yes, a lot of things happen. However, the idea of birth pangs does give us an idea that we could expect those things to be more frequent and greater intensity closer to the end. But doesn't every generation think, no, this is it. This is becoming more intense. Well, right? it may be. So I don't know if there's a statistical way to demonstrate it or not. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Can you name any of the false people that claim to be Jesus? Well, there was the famous Bar Chobba rebellion around 100 AD. A Jewish man claimed to be the Messiah and amassed a great, great following. That's one of the more famous ones. Okay. All right. I didn't know him either. Yeah. All right. Uh, If a professing Christian is living in sin with his or her girlfriend, will they be raptured? Um, That's an interesting question. That is an interesting question. And because it's such an interesting question, I'm not going to answer it. (laughs) I'm just going to say, why mess around, repent, get right with God, and and do that. Um, Yeah. Okay. I'm sure this question is for their I, I, friend. I, I, don't know, I don't know that I can give a categorical answer to that. Yeah. Okay. The, the last thing I would want to say to, to a Christian, or, or let me say this. Again, I'll play it with kid gloves here. To a professed Christian yeah. who is immersed in a life of deliberate rebellion against God. Hey, don't worry, man. You're just going to get raptured. 
what? Who, who, would, who would say that? No, the, the word that would need to be said is, listen, I, I can't speak to your exact level of salvation or walk with Jesus, but why don't you, do, why don't you repent? Why don't you do what God wants you to do? Yeah, yeah why mess around? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when does the rapture occur? After the times of the Gentiles or before? Before. I, I, I believe after the times of the Gentiles. I believe that uh, this is what begins, actually, that the, rap, the rapture would happen right in the cusp at the end of the time of the Gentiles and the beginning of this last of the time appointed to the Jewish people. Okay. Some of this get kind of far in the weeds yeah. into uh, technicalities of prophetic understanding, but that's, that's kind of a answer that might raise more questions than that, but yeah, that's, that's what I believe. Uh, should we look to present geographic or political Israel today as guideline to the return of Jesus? I think that present day Israel is a remarkable evidence of prophecy being fulfilled. Um, it is true, and we can't kid ourselves about this, Israel is largely gathered in unbelief. I mean, for the most part, the vast majority of Israelis are secular. They're not, they're not observant. They're not seeking the Lord. They're certainly not seeking Messiah, Jesus Christ. But remember, when Ezekiel saw the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, they gathered together first as bones, then as muscle, then as skin, then as sinews, and it was only at the end that the breath of life was put in them. So I, I have no doubt at all that it's the hand of God in fulfillment of his eternal plan that has gathered Israel in. When has such a thing ever happened before? Never. It is the hand of God upon the Jewish people and upon the Jewish state of Israel. There's no doubt about it. Yet, they still have yet to be gathered again in belief. But I believe that will happen, and I believe this is leading up to it. Uh, amen. Well, we're about out of time, so any last thoughts as we bring up the guys to do worship? Two last thoughts. Watch and be ready. Father, that's our prayer. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, to do that and to know what that means individually for us in our life. Uh, We want that to be real, Lord, not just words, not just things we say or things we read, but something we actually live. Help us to do it, Lord, and to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.